Uh, well, it seems like every maybe 10, 20 years or so, we have some world event that turns out to be somewhat of a watershed moment in history. Uh, obviously, the most recent example of this is the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, if we all live 20 years from now, we'll probably have short stories to tell uh, and things to recall about uh, that era. But for those of us who are a little bit older, maybe we even think of other times like uh, 9-11. Here's one nation, one day, but it had this ripple effect that reached around the world. Uh, Whenever we reach these watershed events, they're really game changers. They often bring with them kind of a paradigm shift in the way that people think or maybe perspective that trickles down the way that people do things. And uh, you could say that after these types of events, life can never be the same again. And not all of these watershed moments are bad. Uh, Sometimes they're great. I I think in my own life, I'm of the era where the tearing down of the Berlin Wall in 1989 was met with a lot of optimism, uh, at least here in the West. Maybe not so much in Russia. uh, But I remember shortly after the Berlin Wall had come down, and I was standing outside, and I had the radio on, and I heard this song that was popular at the time, and it kind of hit with me the lyrics. It said, right here, right now, there's no place that I'd rather be. Right here, right now, watching the world wake up from history. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of how I feel right now. The, the falling of the Berlin Wall was uh, the kind of the death knell of the, the Cold War and had this worldwide impact to it. Now, 20 years prior to that, even, there was another watershed moment, uh, putting a man on the moon. Uh, I was not around for that one. I'm not quite that old. And uh, I had some doubt earlier as to whether it was a true watershed moment, but people in the first sermon shouted out, oh, yeah, it was. So apparently it was another good watershed moment. I'll say this as a kid. I remember actually reading my dad's yearbook. It came out in the year 1969, 1970 there. And it was on the theme of the moon landing. And all of the comments that people wrote in my dad's yearbook were all about that and just the excitement and the enthusiasm that they had. Uh, It clearly had made an impact on those who'd witnessed it. And what we're going to look at today in Scripture is another one of these historical watershed moments. And it's a good one. And it's bigger than the moon landing it is more significant than the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. It towers over the towers of 9-11 and is more impactful than even a global pandemic. And the reason why this specific event that we're going to look at is bigger and has more impact is it has to do with this major leap forward in the way that God chose to carry out his redemptive plan for humanity. And each one of us in this room is uh, affected by this event, even though 2,000 years has passed, even though we might not realize that we're beneficiaries of what happened all that time ago. And the watershed moment that I'm talking about that we're going to look, about, look at today in Scripture is the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. Uh, in short, prior to this point we're going to look at, God chose to wo- work in his most direct way, Through the Jewish nation, Abraham's descendants, the Jews, one people group with a special role who, according to Exodus 19.6, were going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But after the moment that we're going to look at, 
God made it clear that despite the fact that he was using the Jews in a special way, his redemptive plan was not just for them, not just for a single people group on earth, but for every ethnic group, nation, and tribe. And that is big news. Through what happened in our passage today, God made clear that his plan of redemption was intended for all humanity, and that's a game changer. So we're going to read about this watershed moment and consider the implications to us here in the 21st century. So if you would, if you got your Bibles, please open up to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 here, we're working our way through the book in our series, and we are coming to a major crossroads in the book of Acts. Uh, Up to this point, we've heard primarily about the Jews uh, and the gospel going to the Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, and then uh, to the Samaritans in Samaria, which were kind of related to the Jews, but not wholly Jewish. But now there's this quantum leap forward in Acts 10, where the gospel finally makes inroads to the Gentiles. And what happens today sets up the rest of the unfolding of the book of Acts. It also trickles down to us through history in a way that impacts us today. So you could kind of say it's kind of a big deal. Uh, And this event is so important that Luke dedicates more than a whole chapter to the telling of this particular narrative. And we ought to take note of that. Uh, Pastor Eric often says, repetition is the volume knob in Scripture. Uh, That is true, but it's not the only volume knob in Scripture. Uh, Another one of the volume knobs, so to speak, that gets our attention is one we're going to see in today's passage, and it's that one of pacing Pacing. In other words, when things are told quickly in a story, uh, kind of at a quick glance, they're typically less important. But when the pace slows down and we get a lot of details and we get a lot of dialogue and maybe more information than we bargained for, it's the author's way of saying, hey, heads up people, pay attention to this, slow down and let it sink in. And that's what we have today in Acts chapter 10 and part of 11 here. Now, our strategy for today, since this is such a critical passage in all of Acts, we're going to read through nearly the entire narrative, chapter 10 and part of chapter 11 here, to see what happens between this Jewish apostle Peter and this Gentile soldier named Cornelius. And uh, I'm only going to stop briefly along the way as we read through it. We're going to let the story tell itself And there's lots of reading here, so you can just read along if you like, or you can just listen uh, to the story as it unfolds here. And then when we've read through the entire thing, we're going to do two things. We're going to consider how significant it is that the gospel goes to the Gentiles, which includes us. And then we're just going to make a few quick observations about the story that might challenge how we think or maybe how we live out our faith today. And I'll say this to you note takers, all the notes are at the end, so you can either fidget with your pen or just put it down for a few minutes. Let's read through the story together first, and then all of our kind of bullet points, filling in sermon things will be at the very end. So let's dive into the story here. Let's hear about this watershed event in human history, Acts 10. And we're going to pick up the story here in verse 1. Starts like this, Acts 10.1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Okay, so this is the Gentile guy. He's a military man. 
He and his family were devout and God-fearing. They gave, he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Okay, so this is, this is the start. This is the first scene here. Basically, Cornelius is this Gentile Roman soldier in command of 100 guys, and he's a good guy. He's what scripture would call a God-fearer, so he's someone who would respect and honor the God of Israel, even though he himself was not a Jew. And he's living out his faith. He's praying regularly. He's giving to the poor. And he has this angelic vision. And uh, to me, this vision seems a little bit odd. Remember, the end point of the story is that the Gentiles are brought into faith in Jesus Christ. So if I were in charge of this angel, I would say, hey, go to Cornelius, tell him, put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. One and done. It's done right there. But... That's not how God chose to work. Instead, the angel gives this message and says, go down the road about 35 miles that way, and you're going to find a guy who's there named Peter, and he's staying with another guy named Simon who works with leather. They live by the sea, and ask him to come back with you. Well, it's odd, but at least it's specific, so he can carry it out here. So he gets some of his crew together, and he tells them what happened, and he sends them off and says, bring back this Peter guy. Apparently, we need to talk to him. Verse 9, this is what's going on down the road in Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, Jewish apostle here, went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Okay, so he gets this vision of a critter buffet, right? Now, I guess this is what happens when you go to prayer time and you're kind of hungry. But as hungry as Peter is, when he sees what comes down on the sheet, he says, Hey, no thanks. I guess I'm not quite that hungry. A voice tells him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter says, surely not, Lord. Right? You wonder what tone of voice he said this in. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. So the food in the, the, this, this uh, sheet that's let down, it's not kosher. It's not fit for a Jew to eat. And he says, I'm not going to touch that. I know this must be some sort of test. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. So the vision happens three times. And then immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. So Peter has this vision of the critter buffet three times. He's told to kill and eat three times. He refuses to do so three times. And he's rebuked three times. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. 
And it happens over and over again. Here's your repetition. But he's still not quite getting the point of this vision. Verse 17. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Okay, so a lot's happening here for Peter really quickly. He says, okay, I've just had this vision, still processing, trying to figure out. And then the Holy Spirit tells him, you need to go deal with these three guys who are downstairs and go with them because I sent them. No time for him to decode the hidden meaning of this vision. He's got to deal with these guys who are at his doorstep. Verse 21. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to, to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, at this point, Peter has got to be aware that God is at work here. He himself has had this vision three times, followed up with this prompting by the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I got three guys downstairs, go with them. And then when he hears the other part, they say, well, this guy that we know has had an angelic vision sent us here to get you to come talk to him. And these puzzle pieces are coming together. There's some confirmation here. And it's clear that God's up to something, but Peter still doesn't quite get the whole picture yet. You gotta love Peter. Back half of verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them and some believers from Joppa went along. So there's a group of Jews going. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. So there's a group of Gentiles waiting for Peter. Verse 25, as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. Okay, let's pause there. This uh, scene of Cornelius falling down and revering Peter is a bit awkward, uh, but it's about to get even more awkward uh, because Peter's about to open his mouth. Verse 27. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile, but God's shown me that I shouldn't call anyone impure, unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Okay, now maybe it's just me, but I find this opening speech from Peter a little bit cringy. I mean, he could have just said, hi, everybody, I'm Peter, how can I help you, right? But no, he draws attention to the elephant in the room. We got a group of Jews, we got a group of Gentiles, maybe staring at each other here, and he says, hey, you know that I'm Jewish, my crowd's Jewish, we're not supposed to be here with you grungy Gentiles, but God said, don't call anyone a grungy Gentile, so here I am now, what do you want? Can you tell me why I'm here? It's a bit of an unusual gathering. Jews, Gentiles, Peter acknowledges this. But he does point out that he knows that God wants him to be there. He says, uh, and the message of that vision that he had maybe is starting to sink in a little bit. Don't call anything impure. 
that God has made clean. So he says, okay, I'm here. Now what? Now what are we supposed to do? Jews, Gentiles? He still doesn't quite get what he's supposed to do here. So verse 30, Cornelius answered, three days ago, and we've heard this now. Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God's heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Okay, this is a repeat of what we already know here, but again, it's emphasis. And Cornelius basically says to Peter, well, apparently you have a message from God for us, so we're all ears. What's this message? Verse 34, and this is kind of where it starts to turn for Peter a little bit. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what's right. The light bulb starts to go off for Peter. And so he begins to tell the Gentiles this message about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Verse 36, he says, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. You know what's happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We're witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem, they killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead and on the third day caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He basically shares the gospel with them. And he presumes that the area has already heard about Jesus, but he kind of talks about it in a way that it's this Jewish phenomenon. Verse 36, it's this message to the people of Israel. It occurs in the land of Israel. The prophets of Israel predicted this. Jesus died. He rose from the dead and he forgives sins to all who believe in him. But don't you hate when this happens? He doesn't get to finish his PowerPoint presentation because, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Okay, this is, this is kind of like a Gentile Pentecost. Just like the Jews in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, first have the Holy Spirit fall on them. They're speaking in tongues, crowd gathers. Just like in Acts chapter 8, when the gospel goes to the Samaritans, they have a similar thing where the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So now as the gospel moves forward to the Gentiles, there's almost like this Gentile Pentecost of sorts. Uh, they're speaking in tongues, they're praising God, 
And the Jews there are utterly amazed. And probably Peter is too, but it seems he finally gets the writing on the wall. Peter said, verse 47, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. End of scene. Now, the Gentiles were already believers before the water baptism, as their being filled with the Holy Spirit indicates. And Peter knows that these Gentiles are already in with God because of this. So he says, surely no one can stand in the way of being baptized with water. They're already part of the family. So he says, let's make that clear through water baptism, this public identification with Jesus. They do so. And just like that, in a day, the world was changed. The gospel had made inroads to the Gentiles in such a way that God's decision and God's hand in this was undeniable. But just to make sure that the significance of this watershed moment is not missed, Luke shares a little bit more about what happens after this day in chapter 11. Uh, Because there are some other Jews who weren't there with Peter that day who had a problem with this. And they challenged Peter because this news about the Gentiles was just too shocking. Now, we're going to read a little bit about this challenge in chapter 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing because there's a bit of repetition here. But we'll read the first part, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. This is after the Gentiles are brought in. 11.1 says, The apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Verse 5, I'm not going to reread the whole story because we just read the whole story. And I'll skip it. But again, the point is repetition, pacing. We need to really let this sink in. It is that important. And there is some new information in Peter's retelling the story that we missed the first time around. So let's jump down to the new part of his telling the story in chapter 11, verse 15. He tells them what happened with Cornelius and the Holy Spirit falling. And here's the new info. 11.15, Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us in the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? Who was I? Verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, So then, even the Gentiles, God's granted repentance that leads to life. End of narrative. Now, this new information that we get here in this retelling is the quote from Jesus that pops into Peter's head as he sees the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles. The Spirit's falling them. They're praising God, speaking in tongues. And in that moment, Peter remembers the saying from Jesus, John baptized with water, but you all are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit And he sees what's happening with these Gentiles. He recalls Jesus' words. And in light of these things, he says, who am I to think that I can stand 
in God's way. It's that clear now. But think about that. Here's an apostle of Jesus. He's one of the heroes of the faith. I mean, he's one of the guys we all know. Apostle Peter, we've all heard of him, right? But he realized that by the stance he was taking, he was standing in God's way. Kind of humbling. And he says, well, me holding these sneaky Gentiles out here at arm's length is actually opposing God and his will. So he says, well, since God has made them part of the family, I want them to be part of the family too. And this narrative that is, is punctuated by the statement from the Jews who initially objected to them coming in saying, well, we're convinced even to the Gentiles, God's granted repentance leading to life. The argument has been made, the evidence has been presented, and the conclusion is clear. The Gentiles are in. And that news is a game changer that affects the rest of the book of Acts and much of history that flows from there. And uh, now that we've heard the whole account here of Cornelius and Peter, let's come back full circle to consider the implications for us so you can get out your, your pens if you want to take your notes now. Let's start with this. This is the most important point. What makes this a historical watershed is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is intended for every ethnic group, not just one. Or as these Jews who were kind of hostile at first said, well, even to the Gentiles, God's grand repentance that leads to life. This is the starting point for our application for this passage. It's the most basic truth. And we need to let it sink in and process it a little bit before we go running after other applications. And I'll say this, uh, probably for us in this room, it might seem a little anticlimactic to us because as important as this watershed is, we live after it. It's 2,000 years ago. And I'm just guessing here, probably nearly every believer in this room is a Gentile as I am. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's one or two Jewish-born uh, believers, but the rest of us are Gentiles here. So this news is not exactly shocking to us like it was to that first audience of Jews. Gentiles, a part of God's plan of redemption, that's all we have ever known. And we're happy about it because we are beneficiaries of God's plan and him including us. And so if I were to stand up here and pound on the pulpit and say, stop discriminating against those Gentiles and go share the gospel with them, I mean, it's laughable because we are those uh, grungy Gentiles, so to speak. And we're used to Gentiles being part of the church. But you got to consider that this was a real shock for Peter and the original Jewish believers in Christ. This was a total paradigm shift, basically saying the gospel, this message of Jesus, it's not just for one nation. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. It's universal. Everyone needs to hear this. So I think that one particular implication for us is that we need to have a far-reaching concern for all people groups and nations to have the chance to hear and respond to the gospel. We might not be first century Jews, but we might be really focused on our own crowd, our own people. Practically speaking, I think this far-reaching concern means that we have some kind of interest in world missions. Yes, continue to share the gospel with your neighbors or your coworkers or your classmates, people in your hot sauce tasting club or whatever it is you do. But we also need to invest some care and some concern to see the gospel reach the farthest corners 
of the world. Uh, I think the three kind of principal applications for us are prayer, giving, and going. Prayer, giving, and going. Uh, Prayer, we can pray for people who haven't yet heard the gospel to hear it. Uh, Back in my youth, uh, when I was a new Christian around the age of 19, there used to be this really fat book called Operation World. It's basically, uh, people don't use paper books anymore probably, but it's basically a, a, a database of countries, peoples, uh, that kind of thing that have not been reached with the gospel and they have specific things to pray for. Nowadays, if you just Google Operation World, you can have notifications sent to your phone or your email or whatever to find out, well, here's a country to pray for today. Here's some specific things going on in this country today. Here's an unreached people group. Prayer is something that we can all do. Second, uh, giving. Uh, maybe some of you, many of you probably already give to missions organizations. That's great. Find one that's doing good work and maybe a less reached uh, part of the world. Uh, or uh, through this church even, you might have heard of our work through what's known as Meet the Needy. This is one of the ministries of this particular church. We work with a group of Christians in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And it's kind of like uh, a child sponsorship program where you provide $35 a month and kids are taken care of with part of their meals, clothing, schooling. But most importantly, they're incorporated to a community that is eager to share the gospel with them. And I know we have a team going very soon. I see some of our teammates going here. They'll be going, I think, in March. Is it March? And uh, we have five kids left in the program that we need to sponsor. So it would be great if all five of those kids could be fully sponsored before our team goes out there. So if that's you, uh, please contact the, the church office afterwards and we can hook you up and tell you how to do that. But 35 bucks, you can't really get a burger and an iced tea for 35 bucks anymore, but you can make a difference in a kid's life. Uh, prayer, giving, last one, going. Maybe uh, God's calling you to go uh, yourself on a short-term mission trip, maybe a longer-term mission trip. We have a trip going to the Dominican Republic this summer from this church. I believe there's still time to sign up for that. Or maybe God's calling you to go do missions for a longer period overseas. And that's great. But the, the point here is we need to have this far-reaching concern for others to hear the gospel. What will that look like for you and your family? Now, granted, your first step towards that might not be to sell everything you have and to move to Burkina Faso next week, okay? As lovely as the people of Burkina are, maybe take a little slower. Maybe start with your family or your kids and praying once a week for a country that needs to hear the gospel. But think about what a concrete application is going to look like for you and your family. This is the main truth, but I would say beyond this particular uh, application, there are some other observations we can make about the passage that might change our thoughts, might change our actions a little bit. I'll just share some quick thoughts on those. I'll go through them quickly here. But I want to make clear that the other ones are secondary. This is the main one from this passage that we need to focus on. So let's make sure we get that one right before moving on to these others. But here are some other things that we might consider from this passage. Second one. God's plans are often bigger than we suspect. This is just from reflecting upon this passage this past week here. Uh, I've mentioned before, book of Acts starts out with a misunderstanding between the disciples and Jesus. The disciples, after they see Jesus risen from the dead, say, hey, is this the time you're going to restore the king to Israel? And Jesus says, hey, it's not for you to know the times that the Father set, but you're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
But in light of what's going on with Cornelius, you got to think, maybe Peter didn't even have a clue back when Jesus told him that. He's thinking, okay, so I'm supposed to be a witness to the ends of the earth. We'll tell all the Jews about the Jewish Messiah. And then we get to Acts chapter 10, where he's kind of fighting against the obvious things kind of thrown in front of him again and again and again here. He's going, wow, you're bringing Gentiles in too. That's a lot bigger than I thought was going on here. And the point here is simply to give us some humility that, you know, we can play armchair quarterback with God and say, well, God, why are you doing it this way? It doesn't make sense. It's inconvenient. It's not efficient. And yet he has other plans that are bigger than we, we have in store. Uh, next one here, moving quickly. God cares about reconciling people to one another. This is the one that hit me the most. I hinted at this earlier when I said how inefficient it was that God sends this angel to Cornelius and basically says, go get a guy over there. I mean, why didn't he just have the angel tell him the message here? Wouldn't have been a lot more efficient. But God had other and better plans. God's primary concern wasn't just to be as efficient as he could in this completion of a soulless task, but he cared about bringing people together about how they interacted with one another. Uh, to put it really simply, God cares how his kids get along with one another. God brought these Jews, these Gentiles, face-to-face, sharing homes, sharing meals, as he completed this task of bringing the Gentiles in. And even through this awkwardness, they began to see themselves and each other from God's perspective. I mean, think about the whole scene where Cornelius kind of falls down in worship and reverence at Peter's feet. And Peter in that moment has to come with grips with, I'm just a guy just like this guy. Why is he doing that? But he's having some soul searching to do even in the process, and that's valuable in God's sight. Now, behind me, we have a cross here. God reconciled himself to mankind in the cross. That's the vertical work of God. But there's also a horizontal work of God in reconciling person to person here. It's not enough for God just to say, oh, I've died for humanity. I'm going to have just a million kind of vertical drop-downs heaven interacting with people, and have them just be totally separate from one another. No, he made a body of Christ, brothers and sisters, uh, and he wants us to get along, to put it really simply here. And uh, an application point for us might be to ask, well, who am I at odds with that maybe I shouldn't be? Maybe it's your own Christian brother or sister that you've kept at arm's length. We're too different. We have nothing in common but that's actually not the case because if you're a believer in Christ and they are a believer in Christ, then you have the most important thing in common. And we ought to be able to live reconciliation out. And we need to work towards that because it matters to God and it brings glory to him. So if that's you, I'd ask, what's your next practical step towards reconciliation? Last one here. Thanks for hanging in with me. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't play favorites. Acts 11.34, Peter said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Pretty simple concept here. If God doesn't show favorites, neither should we. And Peter had to come to grips with this in chapter 11, verse 17, when he said, who was I to think that I could oppose God? He said this as he's watching the Holy Spirit following these Gentiles. They're praising God, speaking in tongues, He remembered Jesus' words, 
that his disciples be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, as he's witnessing all this, he's got a choice to make. He's been fighting up to this point. He's saying, am I going to dig in my heels because I don't really want to hang out with these Gentiles and pretend like all this didn't happen and that God didn't orchestrate all these things coming together perfectly? Or am I going to get out of the way and accept these Gentiles who God has clearly already accepted? And so he gives the order to baptize them with water. And the application point here is to start looking at other people through God's eyes so we don't end up opposing God's ways. Now, this doesn't mean that we coddle sin or turn a blind eye to it. Jesus confronted others in their sin on multiple occasions. It's a different sermon, different day. But it does mean that we park our preferences and biases at the door, that we delete all of our instant cancellation tags that trigger us, and interact with people first and foremost as image bearers of God. Whether that's someone who doesn't yet know God, or whether that's your Christian brother or sister who drives you up the wall. And on that last note, I'll just end with a quote by C.S. Lewis from his book, Way to Glory. Uh, shortened his quote and moved one sentence at the very end to make it easier to digest. But his point is that we need to be sober-minded when we deal with other people because they, like us, are image bearers of God. This is his quote. Lewis writes, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else the horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare." You have never talked to a mere mortal. But it is the mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And all day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of those destinations. Again, his point is we need to be sober-minded in how we treat others because they, like we, are image bearers of God. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much. Each one of us who is a believer here is a testimony of your goodness to the Gentiles, your heart to bring people in to know you and to worship you, to be reconciled to you and to be part of your family. So thank you for that work. Help us to have a similar vision to bring people in. For your glory, Jesus. Amen.